Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. Listening from and welcome to IAQ Radio for Friday, December 7th, 2012. This week, episode 266 comes to you from Studio D. We're up on the mountain in lovely Central City, Pennsylvania. My name is Radio Joe Hughes. Joining us from Studio C will be our co host and today's guest, the Z Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Hi, Joe. Hello. Hi, everybody. Good day, Cliff. At the controls, of course, is our engineer, Roxy V, Val Bender. Hello, good morning. Speaking of Dr. Wow, he is enjoying a little downtime in Mexico, so I don't expect him to be calling in today, but that's not a problem. Today's segments include the IAQ radio trivia question. We're going to talk to the Z-Man today about the Pittsburgh Protocol. Been a lot of uh, chat room chatter on the Pittsburgh Protocol the last few months, and with Hurricane Sandy and Sandy updates, we felt it was timely to have a discussion on that and maybe clear up some uh, misunderstandings. We'll do a little halftime. I've got a couple Sandy updates. Uh, Don Weeks sent out a real nice couple of uh, links to some OSHA fact sheets that I think are important for people to know about. We'll go into the interview again, and then we'll finish with the roundup. Before we get started, Let's thank our marquee sponsors. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine. Your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. Okay, just go to the iaqradio.com website. You can link to the show live through the go-to show link. That'll take you over to TalkShoe. Of course, you can download the show afterwards from that same site or of course from itunes we also put a link up on the home page iaqradio.com right next to the show title it says pp link there's a link to the pittsburgh protocol right there if you want to pull that up and look at it while we're doing the show here it's the uh, restoration industry association uh, uh, pdf on that particular protocol all right before we uh, finish make sure we Thank the IAQ Training Institute. Check them out for the most current dates for the training you trust. Of course, if you need 
continuing education credits, just email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. We've had quite a few of those coming in here lately. And let's move it over to uh, the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. Thanks, Joe. Win a cool prize by out-competing fellow IAQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ Radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Email it to cslotnick at cs.com. Or if you're listening to the show live, you can text in the answer via your computer. Congratulations. To Doug Conan for identifying blue S as the predominantly silt-sized sediment, which is formed by the accumulation of wind-blown dust. The word is of German origin, meaning loose. The IAQ Radio Trivia Question for Friday, December 7, 2012, has been sponsored by Triska, the Tri-State Restorers and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Triska is your source to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Check out their electronic membership category at their website, trsca.org. Now for today's trivia question. Who said, any intelligent folk can make things bigger and more complex? It takes a touch of genius and a lot of courage to move in the opposite direction. Back to you, Joe. All right. I like that one, Cliff. And also, good to see a a new guy hitting that trivia question. Anyway, let's move on. Today's guest is both my business partner, he's our co-host, he's a friend, and I enjoy talking with Cliff all the time. Cliff Zlotnick, he was born into a family pest control and odor removal business. Back in 1974, he founded Unsmoke Services. They were a smoke odor removal and fire restoration firm. The firm quickly expanded and diversified into specialty chemical manufacturing, consulting, and training. Cliff likes the challenge of trying to do things thought to be undoable. As a practitioner, trainer, and product manufacturer, he sought to develop practical and effective solutions to common industry problems. He's got an inquisitive mind, which has resulted in the development of process improvements in the odor removal, specialty cleaning, structural drying, microbial remediation, and pest control fields. He developed and held patents on chemical formulations and equipment. He always preferred being in the field or in the lab to sitting in the office. I can attest to that. And he holds multiple advanced industry designations and certifications. His dedication, industry service, and accomplishments have been formally acknowledged with several industry awards. A self-described multipreneur, Cliff has multiple interests, including conceiving and hosting this show, IAQ Radio. we got some music for Cliff. Put on my black and gold and I boarded the plane Touched down in the land of the bucks and pens in the middle of a Steelers game Andrew Carnegie, won't you look down over me Yeah, I got back row tickets, so I'm blue as a boy can be 
Walking in Pittsburgh, walking on a bridge made of solid steel. Walking in Pittsburgh, do I really feel the way I feel? All right, Cliff, what a great song. The, the Pittsburgh Pride it comes out in all of us, I think, anyway. Uh, Pitt. Pittsburgh Protocol, Cliff. What is this protocol? Is it, is it really a drastic deviation from you know what people would consider to be conventional fungal or mold remediation methods? Joe, I, I think the best way to describe the Pittsburgh Protocol is, according to Albert Einstein, if you can't explain it to a six-year-old, you don't understand it yourself. It's a cleaning process. You know, and go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, speaking of Albert Einstein, we already got a correct answer on the trivia Absol- question. Absolutely, <laughs> Andy's fast on the trigger. He's back. So, <laughs> this is you know what? It's an interesting process. I don't know. Do you think we should go into a little of the method itself first before we get into uh, more? Well, oh, I, I think I think what happened is you know, the reason that we came up with the protocol was we were faced with a challenging situation that would not be remediated properly and cost-effectively using conventional wisdom. So it was really some out-of-the-box thinking. And, you know, the the process incorporated uh, a number of things. We were concerned about worker safety, uh, there were time issues, there were financial constraints, uh, raw material costs, um, you know, potential risks of cross-contamination. So what we did was decide to take a practical approach, and that was a deviation from ICRC uh, S520 mold remediation standard. But, you know, what did we do before we had the standard? You know, remediation went on, life went on, and we just felt that we needed to do something different. It's funny you bring that up. I I mentioned that at halftime I'm going to bring up a couple of links to recent OSHA fact. Uh, They they have these little fact handouts that they they, uh, put out. One of them's on mold remediation, and I, I was reading through it this morning. I thought about you. I was like, the first thing on there was to mist the area with some water, which was totally the opposite of what we were told in the first edition, at least, of the S520. Water was, you know, the bad thing. We shouldn't use water, ever ever use water. Now, the OSHA standard or OSHA guideline has water in it. Uh, EPA doesn't really differentiate. They don't say much, but... Where do you think this S five twenty no use of water thing came from? Well, I, I think what happened is you know the committee was was primarily driven by people that I would say were not uh, scientifically trained. Actually, I think some people had agendas. I think I think some people had biases, and I, I, I think in in many ways the standard got out of control. Actually. And, you know, there were a lot of thinkers, but not that many people had practical field experience dealing with this, you know, on a common basis. So I think what happens is, you know, you almost have academics. uh, It's almost like Washington, D.C., you know, like they uh, pass all these rules and regulations to regulate small businesses, but many of them have never owned a business or run a business, so they don't necessarily realize what the impact is. And I'm not saying that the intentions were wrong. I believe the intentions were good, but I think what happened is 
uh, in certain situations, you know, we ended up with a document that is very, very specific, and we end up with a lot of people citing the document, relying on the document, thinking that that document is really the law, and uh, it's far from it. Well, you know, another thing I want to point out is that 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 document has been revised and it's under revision again. So we don't want to, you know, we don't want anybody to think we're being negative toward the people working on it. We know they're working hard. And the the original document, I think, and my impression was that some of the people who did, and there were people on the on the committee that had good practical experience. But I think sometimes when you get in a room with a bunch of people that are more I don't know, have more letters behind their names or maybe are, you know, considered to be guru types. Um, you don't speak up as much and maybe don't put your foot down as much. And I, I know that's never been a problem for you. But anyway, let's go back to the original need. Okay, as I understand it, this was a flooding, uh, I believe 2004. Was it Hurricane Ivan? Yeah, it was. It was a church. The church was approximately 7,500 square feet. Uh, not a, that was the primary building, but they also had some other buildings that were uh, on the property, rectory, social hall, and uh, some smaller properties. And literally the basement filled up with, with water. The basement was approximately 10 feet high. It had a dirt floor. The walls were stone foundation. You know, it was absolutely unfinished. And a restoration contractor was, was called in in order to remediate and, and dry the structure. They, not having the necessary equipment, subcontracted the work. So the contractor went in, uh, late, decided to lay down plastic on top of the, uh, the, the soil, then installed all of his drying equipment, um, the heaters, fans, dehumidifiers, uh, so on and so forth, and plugged everything in and didn't return for a couple of days. They also sprayed bleach on the wood and, and walls and, and so on and so forth as an antimicrobial. And what happened was uh, the, the plastic wasn't seamed together. So literally all the fans blowing around literally turned that basement into a dust bowl. Hmm. And we looked at it something like six or seven weeks later. And when we went down there, it was, number one, I think that this was the the biggest case of negligence and professional malpractice that I've ever seen in the restoration industry in, in my entire career. And, you know, they had the audacity to bill and charge $70,000 for what they had done. And in my opinion, they just exacerbated uh, you know, the situation. I mean, the, the fungal growth on the wood, I mean, it was beyond the pool table. You know, <laughs> you know, it was, uh, you know, in some, you know, in some areas and situations, you know, probably an eighth of an inch to a quarter of an inch thick. I mean, it was a pretty serious problem. And I assume there was still some moisture. It probably dried out over that six or seven weeks to some degree, but I guess enough moisture to support continued growth. I guess, yeah, because I mean, the growth was, you know, the growth was certainly there. Okay. And, you know, I think one of the driving factors was, uh, you know, the business office manager for the parish uh, was a uh, breast cancer survivor. She was very concerned about mold. Uh, you know, she had actually purchased her own copy of the uh, the IICRC water. Or she had the water damage standard. She had the mold remediation standard. And she went on the Internet. And, I mean, she was just very, had great heightened awareness to uh, you know, it's a fungi. 
and completely kind of overlooked any other type of contamination that was in there. I, I personally was way more concerned about bacterial contamination than I was about uh, the fungal contamination. Yeah, I would imagine. I mean, in the soil, the, the plastic lifted up. You had a bunch of, uh, well, we know that was a lot of it was uh, backed up sewers in the Pittsburgh area and uh, a lot of flood water, sewage, feces, and, and all, everything else in there. And it doesn't sound like it was cleaned right in the first place. So, all right, you get there, you look at this situation, you're kind of trying to, you know, you got constraints. Um, they've already spent a lot of money, or at least they're being told they spent a lot of money. I don't know if they paid the bill or not. They've already been. They did. Uh, they did? I think they did. Okay. They have uh, gone six or seven weeks down the road now with, uh, you know, the area pretty much out of service. Uh, they've got all these problems. You go in, you're trying to help them out. What made you think to develop uh, an alternative approach or what what had you done this kind of thing before was it something that you well, just thought up i'd certainly done a lot of you know i'd certainly done mold remediation and done flood work before um this was uh just the most serious situation that i'd ever dealt with uh where both were present you know where you had both the uh you know the sewage contamination and you had just you know, extensive uh, fungal growth. So it was, you know, to me, it was the worst situation and the largest situation in which I'd been involved. Okay, so now you're looking at this and you're going, all right, what what do I do? How do I get rid of this? And I know that you have a background in, you know, chemical manufacturing and, and pesticide application and, and water damage restoration, HVAC cleaning, all of that. Seems like you kind of put them all together. Um, can you describe the process in your words, exactly, maybe give us a little summary of, of what you came up with with respect to what eventually became called the Pittsburgh Protocol. Well, what I thought was that we certainly were not going to have enough money left in the budget. They had about $30,000 left, and, and that we weren't going to have enough to properly remediate it using standard remediation processes. Uh, the second thing, or at, at least from a fungal remediation standpoint, because you still had the bacterial issue to, you know, to deal with. Fortunately, we had another building. Uh, we had a, a rectory and an office building, which was much smaller, in which we could practice and in which we could evaluate different techniques and different procedures. And you know, one of the primary reasons that we came up with this. Uh, deep cleaning, wet cleaning process was that vacuuming off or HEPA vacuuming off the fungal contamination just didn't work. It didn't remove it all. So I mean, the there were significant amounts left, you know, even with using brushes and pressing hard and, you know, going back and forth. I mean, you could see, uh, you know, deep seated within the wood visible fungal contamination. So the other traditional pro approaches would be okay. Then we've got to well, we could sand it. We could use okay. dry ice, soda uh, blasting, uh, some aggressive removal technique, obviously. And right. most of them are are done dry or pretty much dry. Correct. Those, those would have been done dry. But then you know we we had walls which were. Uh, stone, which would have needed to have been dealt with as well, and, and and some of the buildings that you know there were cement floors, concrete block walls, and 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 so on and so forth, in in some of the other you know in, in some of the other buildings. So it was really a variety uh, of cleaning processes, and 
you know, I think the thing that we did that probably was most creative was actually deciding to do something with the soil. You know, we covered the soil with a very, very, or we recommended covering the soil with a very, very heavy rubber liner. And actually, after remediation, they were then able to use that as that, that basement, you know, for storing uh, bingo supplies and things like that, uh, you know, Christmas decorations. And, you know, they ended up getting 7,500 square feet of storage space, uh, which, uh, you know, by putting down the um, moisture barrier, which, I mean, it, that rubber was probably an eighth of an inch thick that, you know, that was put down there and it was installed in an airtight manner, uh, really provided them, uh, you know, a good future storage area. Did you do anything with the soil first or you just felt No, like we just recommended you? covering it. Okay, so you covered the soil. With uh, could we say it was like a roof membrane almost or yeah uh, very similar okay. to a uh, roof me- membrane except this was a uh, it was a fabric it was actually made for uh, lining uh, ponds actually uh, and not that you would have fish in but in which they would put different types of chemical wastes and and, and so on and so forth it was an industrial membrane fabric I see. And, you know, it was. I think it was as good, if not better, than a roofing membrane, but certainly designed to be in contact with the ground for for long periods of time. Now, was there were there floor drains in here that you had to work? There with? were absolutely no drains in the main sanctuary at all. Okay, and that's not uncommon in this type of construction. I mean, how, how old would that building be? You have an idea? Um, let's see. I can. I know it's a historic landmark. So it's probably at least and uh, I can I can certainly get you that information. Okay. We're we're talking more than seventy five. Let's say that much. I mean, we've got oh, a yeah, stone absolutely. foundation, dirt floor. Um, what about the flooring? I assume this is some kind of rough cut lumber. Uh, and do you know what it was by any chance, or whether it was pine, or whether it was a hardwood, or honestly, don't know. Okay. Honestly, don't know. And, uh, you know, there, there there was wood flooring above it, several layers of wood flooring above it, carpet on top of that. And one of the reasons why I was very concerned about dry ice and some of the other methods is I thought that we were going to drive a lot of particulate, you know, fungal fragments, soil, et cetera, up into the sanctuary area. Okay. And with the rubber membrane, I'm just curious, did you attach it to the walls? or? How yeah, did, absolutely. How did you? Uh, we, we didn't do that. The contractor did it. They really did an excellent job. You know, there, there were certain pillars that were down there in piers, and they they made it airtight. They, right. they did a wonderful job. They actually ran it up the walls uh, several feet. Okay, I'm trying to picture this now, Cliff. Is it a big open basement area then? Big, pretty much wide open basement area okay now do yeah, you know not necessarily level but uh I, I, you know there were the ceiling height was probably about anywhere from eight to ten feet varied okay now i'm, I'm also trying to picture um you're looking at this what about lighting is there, is there good lighting down there did you get to bring in lighting? Uh, there was temporary lighting okay so you got temporary lighting in there now you did a practice run at your own facility, so you didn't have to do No, no, testing. not at our facility. We, we actually did a practice run in uh, one of the, in a, in a small basement area. Okay. 
Okay. okay. Something I always like to point out to the people I work with, do a test patch before you try something different or a little different approach, a little, even on jobs you've done several times before, these test patches can be very helpful and you, you did that. All right. So in your test patch, you used the wet method. Well, we tried, we tried everything. I mean, you know, we tried a wide variety of dry processes and then we deter- then what we found worked best was to uh, take a, uh, a detergent uh, antimicrobial solution and apply it with a foamer so that it would hang. Okay, this is a quat. So we, 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 we foamed it on. People commonly and, refer to that as a quat. Like a, or... In that case, actually, initially, the, the first product we, we used was actually a hybrid product. It was a combination of a phenolic and the quat was okay. the first thing that, you know, that we used. Okay. And it worked well, and um, you know, for the project, we actually felt that we could use a, a more concentrated, less expensive product, and that's what we uh, specified. Okay. And what's the chemical, the active chemical ingredient in that product? Oh, that would have been a quat. Okay. Yeah, that was a quat. And give me the full name for people: quaternary ammonium. Well, it was actually a uh, it, was, it was actually a combination uh, of multiple. Quaternary ammonium chlorides. It was an EPA registered, you know, cleaner disinfectant. Okay, so you've got several quaternary. I have trouble. In, in addition to the quats, you know, there are other detergents, uh, you know, that, that are in there along with it. And there are other, you know, there are other ingredients in there that you know affect, um, you know, soil removal, you know, control water hardness, and so on and so forth. I think that's important for people to understand. It's not just a quat in there. There's other detergents and other products that are designed for deep cleaning essentially is that accurate um absolutely and i i think one of i think one of the issues and that, that i probably like to talk to i guess at this point before we go on is i think there's a, just a big misunderstanding of antimicrobials in our industry and and they're perceived as dangerous poisons you know when in fact some are simply synthetic detergents. I mean, these products were developed for cleaning, and scientists found out after playing around with them that they were also pretty good at killing microorganisms. So you have this addition to being a good cleaner. Some of these products are also uh, antimicrobial. You know, there are other antimicrobial products that are safe enough to be permissible uh, you know, for use in foods. And, you know, one of the reasons that we recommended the product that we recommended is that it, after, after use, provided about seven days of antifungal protection. So in the, we were not necessarily going to install a lot of additional dehumidification for cost-concern reasons. So we just wanted to be sure that things would, uh, would be dry. Okay, so uh, you know, another comment that I'd like to make in terms of, of just the dehumidification and, and spraying water and, and so on and so forth, you know, I learned long ago that wetness is an unnatural state for most materials. And, you know, we talk about things going back to equilibrium, but things that get wet actually desire or want to dry because wetness is an unnatural state. So given time, anything that gets wet is going to dry. And, you know, one of our considerations was that we just wanted to be sure that while it was wet, uh, it was protected. 
you know, from supporting micro from that moisture supporting microbial growth during that drying period, which we weren't really sure how long it was going to be. All right, for those that aren't familiar with the process, let's describe it a little bit more. You've got the layer of uh, cap poly or whatever the rubber membrane on the floor. Now you go in. And well, what the rubber the membrane did is it gives you a work surface. Then you can roll scaffolds over top of it, put ladders over top of it. Uh, you have something as a barrier to prevent, uh, you know, any liquids, you know, from getting into the soil. You know, it just gives you a good work surface, and, and it's permanent. You know, you can leave it in there. Okay. So in the next step, what's the next step, Cliff? Okay. Uh, what we would do in certain situations is, is before we even applied the foam, we would vacuum. I mean, anything that was grossly, uh, you know, contaminated, we would we'd certainly vacuum off because it, it just it, it, that really made the most sense. So we'd quickly vacuum. Uh, we would foam. We would allow the foam to sit there for several minutes, and then what we would do is we would pressure wash it off. And I think that's where people really get. Uh, excited and upset and, and so on and so forth this is with this idea of pressure washing and introducing moisture you know the amount of moisture that was introduced was very very controlled you know we measured and we did testing and we measured the amount of moisture that uh, we started with and we measured the amount of moisture or I'm sorry we measured amount of, of cleaning solution we started with and after doing the process we uh, measured the amount of cleaning solution that was left and we could actually determine that it took us about four ounces per square foot to thoroughly decontaminate the wood and that would allow multiple passes and you know it was done at about 750 psi okay, okay. and, and 1.6 gallon per minute and that, that, that those were the specifications of the pressure washer we used, and it was a household pressure washer. Nothing special, uh, you know, about it at all. All right. Now, for those, I think it cost eighty or ninety bucks. For those tuning in a little late, on the IAQ Radio homepage, there's a link next to the title of the show. It says PP Link. Click on there. You get a copy of the RIA version of the Pittsburgh Protocol. Before we go to break, Cliff, let me ask you a real quick question on the foaming process. I, when I talk to people about this, that's where they seem to get the most confusion. Um, it's different than from what they're used to. Could you explain where that came from? Well, actually, uh, foaming equipment has been used you know, for years for cleaning in breweries and, and, and other places. I got interested in it actually from the, the pest control industry. They were using it for termite treatment. And actually, the, the foamer that we used on that particular project was made by a pest control company. It was made by a company called B&G Equipment. And what it did is it took the standard cleaner disinfectant, and because it had a surfactant in it, uh, it turned it into a foam, you know, very much like shaving cream. And by spraying that on or applying the foam, it did two things. Number one, it helped uh, penetrate uh, using the minimum amount of water. The second thing it did is it worked to suppress dust. Beautiful. So, it's an so rather than having all sorts of dust blowing all around, uh, the foam covered it. It was like putting a blanket okay. on it. Okay. And this is in preparation for the next step, which is the power washing. Which 
was the power washing correct. Okay. Listen, we've got to take a quick break for okay, to sure. thank our sponsors here. Everybody hang in there. We need about 90 seconds to thank our sponsors, and we really appreciate their help with putting this program out every week. We'll be right back. Thanks to our association sponsors, the National Air Duct Cleaners Association, NADCA, is the leading authority for information on HVAC inspection, cleaning, and restoration. Visit NADCA at www.nadca.com. The Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at www.iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleancleanfax.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. Okay, before we get back to our interview, the second half with the Z-Man, I want to mention a couple of important, I thought, documents that came out very recently from OSHA. There are two new OSHA fact sheets, and since we've been focusing on Hurricane Sandy or Superstorm super Sandy cleanup, I thought I'd mention these. If you go to the OSHA.gov website or you go to the IAQ Radio website, we'll have them in our resources links. But they are Hurricane Sandy cleanup PPE matrix, so personal protective equipment matrix. Uh, go to OSHA.gov and just put in their search box there, Hurricane Sandy PPE. It's a real nice one-page matrix on the left side. It goes over the type of PPE for, for instance, head, eye, face, ears. And across the top, it goes over what type of activities you're performing and lets you know what level of PPE or what type of PPE you should be using for that. And I found a couple of interesting uh, interesting recommendations, or actually more than recommendations, from uh, OSHA on that one. There's a second one called OSHA Fact Sheet Mold Hazards During Hurricane Sandy Cleanup. And that's another good little fact sheet, just a quick two-page sheet that gives you some overview on the types of issues you should be 
aware of when dealing with either mold cleanup or just general Hurricane Sandy cleanup. And actually, the mold one is three pages long. All right, let's get back to our interview on the Pittsburgh Protocol with the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. Cliff, let me ask you this, though. We've got to the point where we foamed on this product. We've, we're now power washing off the foam, and we're using, are we also still using the cleaner disinfectant? Yeah, the, the, correct. It's, it's uh, the, the same product we ended up foaming on was also used in the pressure washer. Again, following label instructions, uh, I think it was two ounces per gallon is, uh, you know, is, is what was used, uh, you know, of the concentrate per gallon of water, and it was uh, sprayed on, pressure okay. washed on. And then after this, um, there's there's steps in the process. What's the next step in the process? Well, uh, what we needed to do when we uh, when we did the first test was we needed to try to dry it as adequately as possible. We actually used a, a leaf blower to blow off, or br- and we used a brush and a leaf blower to blow off. Uh, you know, the little droplets of water. And I think what happens is wood is, is although it's semi-porous, what happens is is that it doesn't, doesn't really absorb a lot of moisture, and gravity causes a lot of it to, you know, to run off. So even though we were wetting it, uh, we weren't really using that much water. Um, and the wood really, really wasn't, uh, you know, wasn't that wet. So we could remove the maximum amount of water, and then what we ended up doing is, is coating it. And we actually coated it with um, a, um, a coating that was permeable. And we knew that the coating was, you know, w- w- was suitable for application to a damp surface. I knew that before. And, you know, I, I think what, what happened was I was intimately familiar with the products. You know, I had developed them. I had worked with them before. I knew what they would do. I understood them, and I trusted them. And I think that's where some people get in trouble is they don't necessarily understand the products, you know, that that, that they're using. And in this case, you know, I, you know, I had the necessary understanding to do it. Uh, the what happened was the in one of the the the, the, the test areas. Uh, the, the remediation contractor that was doing the work was assigned, and I'm really, really glad that he was, was assigned a small basement area to do approximately uh, 2,000 square feet. And we gave them a set of specifications. We actually made a CD, which step-by-step showed them exactly what we wanted them to do and how we wanted them to do it. So we shot video, put it on a CD, gave it to them. So we were very, very specific. We also gave them some written instructions. And they just decided that they weren't going to follow them. They felt that they knew better, that you know they were going to kind of do it their way. And they were an asbestos abatement contractor. They weren't really familiar with uh, you know with, with cleaning, but they were the ones that you know were hired to you know to do the work. And when I went in there and inspected the work uh, and you know do a white glove on it it was unbelievable. I mean, there was still physical dust and mud on surfaces. I mean, it, I mean, it was very, very, very dusty. Hmm. And, you know, we had sampling done, and we had told them that we were going to be sampling uh, after they were done 
uh, we, we did sampling, and this was after remediation. They ended up with sampling, and the sampling reflected 5 million bacterial colony-forming units per inch, and that was after wow. remediation. And this was in a separate area, obviously. No? Just so people Correct. Can... It was in a separate area, and they had just inadequately cleaned it. Okay. Let me ask why and, you were... Go ahead. If you have... And, you know, what happened was, you know, they actually got back on track, and they realized, you know, you're not going to get paid. This is bad. These are the results. This is unacceptable. Now are you going to do it my way? And they decided that they would. And, and after that, I mean, they did a wonderful job. Uh, you, know, you know, they redid that. You know, it was certainly adequate. They did a wonderful job. They did the rest of the project, and they got their clearance, and everything was good. While you're doing the foaming, power washing, what other engineering controls, if any, are in place? Do you have negative air machines? Do you have just some cross-ventilation going on, or what do you recommend? That's put that well, I think it's going to depend on a job-by-job. Job, you know, it's going to depend on a job-by-job job basis. You know, okay. when we did the initial sampling, uh, we set up, uh, negative pressure in the work area. We, we had a large fire exhaust fan. We put it in a doorway. And I think it moved about 3,000, uh, you know, CFM. So, uh, you know, we were able to do it when we did the test area. And th those controls are going to vary based on the situation. But, you know, the good thing is you're not going to have as much particulate as you would have as if you were doing demolition or, you know, anything that's going to generate a lot of dust because this, this product is really an anti-dust cleaning process. So you really don't generate a lot, and as a matter of fact, we go out of our way to suppress it. Now, with the water, there's obviously some water, there's some foam, etc. How are you cleaning that up off the floor? And on well, the, the foam, uh, you know, the water removes the foam. It drops down to the floor, and at that particular point, you can mop it up, you can squeegee it, or you can vacuum it. But again, there's not a whole lot because you've, you've applied four ounces per square foot is all you've used. And that allows you several passes. I mean, you can get into the cracks, you can get into the crevices. It's very, very thorough. And one of the things that we would do, and I know it sounds crazy, is we would actually take... Uh, large flashlights and actually mount them to the cleaning wands with duct tape so they could actually see, you know, with like a little spotlight what yeah. they were doing, where they were at. You know, kind of like when the police go in, they have, uh, you know, the flashlight right on the gun or, you know, their their, their pistol or their weapon. Sure. This was pretty much in the cleaning apparatus that they used, and you know, they were able to see exactly what was what. So, uh, you know, cleaning was very, very thorough because I told them, you know, I'm going to take the longest Q-tip that I can. I'm going to stick it into the darkest place. And I, better, <laughs> I better not find anything. Well, that's a great tip, though, with the flashlight because any good consultant coming in and doing a, a verification at the completion of the project, they're going to use a flashlight and they're going to hold it uh, at, a, at an angle to uh, the the surface where you actually the dust creates a shadow and that helps you to see that there is still contamination there. So that's a, that's a great tip. Now, let's move on a little bit to, uh, we had a couple other questions in the show announcement. One was, could this be helpful in cleaning up after Sandy? Now, I know what I think, but, you know, and I've used the process before, by the way. I, I helped a contractor do a similar, not quite as bad project up in the Boston area. and It worked really well in the basement, but I'll get into variations on the theme in a minute. But what do you think with respect to, 
cleaning after Sandy, and I know you've done this after Katrina with some other folks from RIA. Can you just comment on that? Sure. I, I think it's even more valid today than it ever was in the past, uh, and the reason for that is it's easily adaptable for do-it-yourself remediation for property owners who are either underinsured or uninsured. You know, as far as the efficacy of the process, certainly people can disagree, and that's okay. I don't have any, you know, I'm not saying it's the only way to do it. I'm not saying it's the best way to do it. I think for the circumstances for this particular project in which it was used and in which we wrote the protocol, I think it was, you know, I think it was the best recommendation. We need to remember that the marketplace is self-correcting, and what I mean by that is if there were problems with the process, we would have heard about it by now. Uh, you know, remember, the client had heightened awareness, you know, was very, very well informed. There are hundreds of people that go to church in this parish. And you know, if there was a problem, we would have heard about it. And there was the woman in the parish that had the uh, In the office, you know, the breast cancer survivor, you know, she was head of the office. And, uh, you know, she had great heightened awareness to it. And I know you've taught this this protocol to others in your AMRT courses back when, you know, you were still with the uh, the old group and, and teaching those, and, and I'm sure hundreds of people, in fact, I've talked to many, who have used similar processes around the country. What and, and, of- when we, and Joe, and when we did it, we actually did it with real mold in, a, in an environment. I mean, you know, we weren't just talking about it. You know, we actually grew real mold with the design of trying to grow stacky and other molds that would be considered more hazardous, and you know, we we did it live because, you know, it, I, it wasn't supposed to be practiced here, and the first time they do it's going to be in the first client's house. I mean, it was for real. Let me ask you this. Is is, this, is the goal of the Pittsburgh Protocol to kill microorganisms? No, not at all. The, the goal is to deeply clean. You know, it's to remove contaminant from substrate. I mean, that's what we were trying to do. And the fact that the cleaning product, and, you know, particularly with river flooding, I mean, if you think about some of the stuff, you know, besides the microbial contamination that can be in the water, you know, oils and petroleum products and pesticides and all sorts of other stuff that can be in there, you need a good, strong cleaning agent that's going, a good, strong, in in my opinion, probably an alkaline cleaning agent, in order to remove it from those surfaces and and typically these products inherently do that the fact that they also kill microorganisms you know that's kind of an you know, that's kind of an added benefit uh, the one thing that we really want we're concerned about was the wood and that's one of the reasons why we put uh, a coating on it and the particular coating that we used uh, the coating was protected by a copper compound and uh, that copper compound has been used for many, many years to actually uh, treat wood. And this was done quickly after you were done with the remediation. Do you want to explain well, why? I, I, it, what happened was when we did the small sample area, we only had a two- or three-hour window in order to work in there. And so we needed to apply the coating while the surface was damp. And it was also cold, by the way, uh, as well. I'm not necessarily recommending that uh, the coating be applied to a damp surface, it, and and really the only time that occurred was in the 
you know, you know, really in the test area. The test area. Okay. You know, the, the, you know, the, the, when the remediation was done, you know, they were able to, you know, do like a larger area, you know, so many thousand square feet, then come back and code it. Yeah, and that that brings up a very important point. Another thing we advertised in in, in run up to the show, and that was deviations from this. Is this a one-size-fits-all solution? I think you've answered that, but why don't we go into that a little bit more? Well, I think, you know, in particular in Sandy, uh, you know, we recently, I was involved in a technical situation uh, with a school, and uh, it was a school they were trying to save a very costly and expensive maple floor, and, you know, fortunately they had pretty good access to the underside of it, but unfortunately in the underside of it, uh, was an electrical room that had a lot of uh, wiring, equipment, transformers, all sorts of stuff, you know, was in that room. And they were really worried about not, you know, what they asked is, can we just foam it on and not do anything afterwards? And I said, no, you know, uh, this is a multi-step procedure. And, you know, the foam is there to penetrate the surfaces and for dust suppression, but then you need to remove that and you need to thoroughly clean that. And, you know, we recommend wet cleaning it. And they said, well, we can't pressure wash everything off. And I felt that they could. And then they told us, well, you know, we would have to do all this masking and preparation. And, and that was one option, you know, doing the necessary masking and moisture proofing and so on and so forth so you can safely, uh, you know, clean the surfaces. Another way to do it is to kind of modify the approach. And what I suggested that they do, and it's something that I've done in the past uh, successfully as well, is to use an airless paint sprayer. And airless paint sprayers are pretty versatile tools. And what you can do is you can adjust both the, uh, the, you know, the angle of the spray, you can adjust the pressure, and, you know, by doing that, and, you know, you can actually use that as a pressure washer. Okay. But it's like a mini pressure washer. With we're the... not using as much, you know, we're not using anywhere near as much water. Uh, and, you know, as far as pressure goes, you can certainly have, you know, they, they generally are capable of pretty high pressure. But you can accomplish the same thing. You know, it'll take you a little bit longer, but you can accomplish, you can get the same results. So, you know, where there's the will, there's the way, Joe. And, and I think it's a very, very adaptable. I think all the techniques uh, are effective, uh, you know, individually, and then the contractor has to uh, decide which ones are going to be most appropriate for that specific project and so the, the, they would have more control over also where the spray goes with the paint sprayer i guess sure yeah because okay. they're going to be much in, in most situations they'll be much closer now obviously they have to deal with the electrical hazards they're going to have to you know shut down lock out tag out whatever is necessary to get that you know uh, electrical hazard controlled but that doesn't mean there aren't options I, I did a job up in Boston, and I know I talked to you about this, but it's been so long ago you probably don't remember much. And, and we had a similar situation, a three-story old mansion that was being converted to a Ronald McDonald house. And it had been flooded in the past. It, it wasn't current. It wasn't as bad as what you're describing. But there was mold in the basement. So we used the protocol as you've described it here today in the basement. But we did a test patch first, you know, the whole nine yards. We And we didn't coat it when we were done. It wasn't. Uh, wasn't necessary for this particular project, but at least while I was there, they didn't code it. They may have done that later. I don't know, to be honest with you. Then on the first and second floor where we were cleaning this rough cut lumber, because of the 
finishes and the architectural elements to the to the area and the fact that it was going to be difficult to control where the water went we pretty much went with more of foaming and then a scrubbing uh, with a, a brush and water etc and scrubbing it off as kind of an alternative to the power washing and it worked very well um, now there were areas that needed recleaned they were tested they did their tape lift samples afterward and everything but worked very well what other deviations have you seen or talked to people about um, so that this is not a one-size-fits-all protocol? Well, you know, you, you talked about coating, you know, whether or not, you, you know, it's coat or don't, don't coat, foam or don't foam, yeah. uh, you know, pressure wash or don't pressure wash. I think that there are a lot of different you know, I, I think each specific situation is, is, is going, uh, you know, to drive it. Um, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, particularly in New Jersey where you have all these houses with sandy, a lot of these are, you know, you have a lot of beach houses that, you know, they're on crawl spaces and, uh, you know, cement may not be an option to put in, into those spaces. But I, again, I think that fabric membrane probably makes um, a lot of sense. And I think it's something that's affordable. You know, you don't necessarily need a lot of expensive equipment in order to do it. And you don't necessarily need a lot of expertise in order to do it. And I think when it comes to worker safety, uh, I, I think you, know, you can use engineering controls. And I think the method itself has some built-in in engineering controls, you know, dust suppression, et cetera, which are going to change the personal protective equipment requirements and, and have the workers much more comfortable. Great point. One other thing, Cliff. You mentioned sampling in passing, and I want to make sure we, you know, because this has been on some of the chat rooms, and we've right, seen right. it back and forth, and, and one of the things that seemed to be called into question was the sampling and whether there was sampling done or not. Can you go into that in just a little more detail? Well, the, as I said, the sampling that was done, Joe, was primarily for bacteria, and it, it was a long time ago, and... Uh, the, the clearance criteria for this particular project uh, that, that was utilized was the standard clearance cr criteria that was used, you know, at the time. You know, it was, uh, you know, whatever was in documents in terms of what was suggested, uh, this product exceeded all expectations, both from a fungal uh, standpoint and from a bacterial standpoint, but I was most concerned in this particular situation about the bacteria. Okay. So there was like a swab sampling, I guess. You mentioned having a long swab. We did some tapeless. We did some swab sampling. Actually, in Herb Lehman's lab, did all the, uh, you know, did all the analysis. And, you know, I, I need to dig out the file. You know, that's a, maybe Herb has it. We'll have to call yeah. him about that. That's great. All right. Now, one more. We're, we're running a little low, but I don't want to go too far. And we've had some, some comments. I think I've covered all the comments that came in. Is this protocol still applicable today? I think that it is. I think it's probably as applicable, if not more applicable, than, you know, than it was before. I know that certain people are, are comfortable or uncomfortable uh, or, or maybe more comfortable with a different chemistry. I, I know one of the questions uh, you know, on the chat board was peroxide. Would I recommend or would I use peroxide uh, for this particular 
uh, situation, and I can tell you that I, I generally would not use it for this particular situation. My experience, and I think peroxide uh, antimicrobials are great. I have no problems with them. Uh, my only concern is that they tend to be very quickly deactivated by organic uh, material and by soil. So if there wasn't a lot of soil, you know, let's say it was an attic or someplace like that, I think that, you know, we're, you know, it was a fungal remediation project. I think that I would be more likely to recommend a peroxide product in that situation than I would in a uh, situation where the basement was submerged and, and had sewage in it. And also I think that uh, I've found peroxide products have a tendency to be more irritating to uh, respiratory system than some other products. To the workers, and you're you're using yeah, I understand. Now, you you went to New Orleans, I believe, after Katrina, and I, as I recall, and I don't I don't remember exactly. You can tell our listeners, wasn't this protocol suggested, recommended, maybe even by a government agency after that trip? Well, now what, what happened was I had the privilege of. Uh, going to New Orleans uh, as a team. And and from RIA, uh, Frank Heaton went, uh, Michael Pinto went, um, myself. um, I'm trying to think of of the other people, uh, you know, that that were on that team. But, uh, you know, there were also some scientists and, uh, you know, that were there. And we put together uh, an advisory in terms of recommendations and RIA has published uh, that document and actually FEMA, you know, published, you know, the document with photos, including the protocol stuff and, and so on and so forth. And we just felt that a lot of the information and guidance that was previously put out was just inaccurate. And, you know, we ran into damage caused by bleach. Bleach also is not really a good cleaner. And, you know, you need to be concerned not so much about the mold, but uh, the mold is just too narrow. You you need to be concerned about other things that are in that flood water uh, as well. You know, bacteria, uh, different types of chemicals. Uh, I know that uh, Mike Pinto did a lot of sampling uh, of the water, and uh, they found all sorts, you know, of crazy things in there. Um, and you, you need to think about it really holistically. I think you need to protect yourself, protect your workers. And, and you know, the thing that really bothers me is I've seen a lot of Sandy coverage uh, on the news. I followed it on the Internet. And it just seems that no one's wearing respiratory protection. Well, I saw on it's pretty scary. CBS Evening News two nights ago, they kept showing photos of these folks and they were removing what looked to me like nine by nine asbestos floor tile and it was a huge area and they were in there just scraping it up with no personal i mean a couple of them had dust masks on but it was just uh, it wasn't i couldn't believe they put it on tv like that but that's what happens after these major mega uh, storms you know people they're trying to just get her done and sometimes we don't think about what we may be doing in the long run when we just try and get her done anyhow can the protocol be improved upon i think so joe i've given some thought to it and you know this was done a long time ago it's done like eight years ago and i i think over time we learn more we know more 
and actually I, I'm working on it. I've got some ideas for uh, improving the chemistry. I've got some ideas for improving the application equipment. I've got some ideas for improving the, uh, the the training of workers. You know, particularly the public who would be uh, you know who would be doing it. So it's something that uh, you know, among many other projects that I, I am uh, committing some time and effort to. Well, for those that are interested, I'm sure as uh, those ideas flesh out, we'll be covering them here on IAQ Radio. Before we go, Val, do you have a final question or no? Sure. Um, Cliff, if you could just provide your contact info, which I know is on the, on our homepage as well, and also if you had any final comments to add to today. Well, I think the best way to get a hold of me is uh, czlotnik, Z-L-O-T-N-I-K, at cs.com. That's my email. Uh, my phone number at the office is 412-771-2300. Uh, no, I, I, no final comments. I'm, I'm just happy to... Uh, you know, hopefully provide some guidance that will be useful to the public and to remediation contractors. And, and thanks for the nice comments coming in. I, I want to add real quick before we go that, you know, Cliff does a lot of free consulting um, by phone. Feel free, you know, send him an email. He likes to help people, and uh, he's done a lot of it over the years, and it seems to pay off and uh, come back in, in a lot of fine, nice comments. When I'm on the road, I always have people tell me, make sure you say hello to Cliff for me, and uh, we always appreciate uh, what you're doing here for the industry, Cliff, and uh, we appreciate having you as co-host on IAQ Radio. All right, Chuck. All right. Well, this is Radio Joe Hughes saying that uh, it was great. Before we go, uh, make sure I thank our engineer, Val Bender. Sure. Good, Good job. Show. That Good was very show. nice. Uh, of course, our growing group of loyal listeners out there, nice group online, and uh, the downloads are coming along nice. Please come back and join us. To actually, join the Z-Man next Friday. I'll be on the road training. The Z-Man will be back next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. I hear babies cry. I watch them much more than I never knew, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world, yes, I think to myself, what a wonderful has been another IAQ Radio production.